Psalm 7. This is a meditation of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. O Lord, my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me, or have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. So the congregation of the peoples shall surround you. For their sakes, therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. O oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. If he bends his bow and makes it ready, he also prepares himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. He made a pit and dug it out and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return upon his own head and his violent dealing shall come down on his own crown. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. And our uh, sermon text today is Exodus 29, it's verses 38 through 46. This is entitled, I Will Dwell Among Them and Be Their God. Exodus 29, starting in verse 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. With the one lamb shall be one-tenth of an ephah of flour mixed with one-fourth of a hint of pressed oil, and one drink one fourth of a hen of wine as a drink offering. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and you shall offer with it the grain offering and the drink offering, as in the morning for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak with you. And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. So I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. If you read through the Old Testament... You may have gotten kind of tired of all the offerings which are mandated in it, especially in the books of Exodus and Leviticus. I actually had a friend quit reading the Bible because of them. It seemed brutal, pointless, and overly excessive to her. Reading the pages one after another and not understanding what is actually going on can certainly lead to that kind of a conclusion. Be honest, it seems tedious, doesn't it? Even the Lord said that he had had enough of Israel's burnt offerings. If you don't believe me, just check Isaiah 1, verse 11. But the reason was because of the manner in which they were offered, not because it wasn't the right thing to do. The Lord had called Israel and had given them these rules for a reason. 
It was first so that they would be his people and he would be their God. This was in order for there to be a communion with him through their offerings. But they got to the point where communing with God was a chore and not a joy. They mechanically offered what the law required and there was no true fellowship in what they did. The second reason for the required offerings was to show us something else. These offerings under the law, like every other detail of what we have seen, were given as a type and as a shadow of Christ to come. I know that the thought of analyzing a bunch of sacrifices and offerings may seem dull, but it is not. If you still aren't impressed with the verses ahead when we get done today, I promise you a full refund on your time. But I don't believe that you will ask for it. If you truly love what Christ has done, then those things which picture him will be worth the time that you spend looking into them. Our text verse today comes from 2 Corinthians. It's verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 16. He says, For you are the temple of the living God, speaking to us as Christians. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. The Lord said in our sermon verses today that he would dwell among the children of Israel and that he would be their God. He said in 2 Corinthians 6 that he would dwell among us and be our God. Doesn't that get your curiosity up? How do the two accounts tie together? How can the morning and evening sacrifices of ancient Israel point to us in our current position with God? Well, stay awake and pay attention for the next 30 or 40 minutes and you'll see. One thing is for sure. We can't find out if we don't open this book and study it. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is a lamb, morning, and evening. This is verses 38 and 39. Verse 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. The consecration of the altar was explained in the previous verses, especially in verses 36 and 37. Now, immediately following that description, the account moves directly into the establishment of the daily offerings to be made on that altar. The purpose of the ordination rites, which were described both for the priests and for this altar, is explained in these verses today. They are the end design to which that ordination is actually subservient which is the worship of God and an acknowledgement to him that all things come from him. It would make no sense to ordain the priests and to consecrate the altar if there was not an ultimate purpose for their ordination and its consecration. Therefore, it shows that the intent for those consecrations find their fulfillment in what will now be described. No exception is given here or anywhere else concerning a relief from these offerings. Even if the land were completely deprived of food or animals, these would still be required because God, being the source of all things, was to be acknowledged for being the provider or the withholder of those things for the people. His grace could be anticipated if the offerings were made, but even if it was withheld, they would still be given in petition for mercy. To refuse to offer them as instructed would first be a violation of the covenant, and secondly, it would be a stubborn refusal to acknowledge the sovereignty of God who controls the nations and who directs the destiny of Israel. The life of the people belonged to the Lord, and therefore these sacrificial animals stood as representative of their lives being offered daily to him. These offerings then could be summed up by Paul from his words of Romans chapter 12. Here's what he says. I beseech you therefore, brethren, 
by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This mandate will continue throughout the duration of the old covenant. Even until the time of Christ, these offerings were made. At his coming, they were made obsolete, but they continued on until the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. The reestablishment of them is being planned right now in Israel. They're actually practicing right now doing these things. But this does not mean that they will be acceptable to God. Rather, they are a part of what God has said would come about in the final seven years of the prophecy of Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27. However, these offerings were so especially important to the covenant while it was in effect that we read this from Ezra chapter 3. It says, From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Even before the laying of the foundation of the second temple, the daily offerings prescribed here were initiated. The same will probably be true with the reestablishment of the offerings in the coming of the next temple. As we will see, though, the offerings only picture the coming work of Christ. In him, they are fulfilled and they are set aside. Verse 38 continues, two lambs of the first year. The words read, kebasim b'neshanash neim, lambs, sons of the year, two. These lambs were to be young in the first year, picturing innocence. A lamb of any age, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, is a beautiful picture of innocence. But one of the first year is especially so. It's hard to imagine sacrificing such a pure and unstained animal. However, it needs to be considered that it is the Lord who is mandating the sacrifice. As he is the creator of the lamb, then it is his prerogative to stipulate whatever animal he chooses. In selecting a young, tender, and innocent lamb, he was making a picture of his own son to come. Every single day, 360 days a year, and therefore 720 times each year, these young lambs were sacrificed in anticipation of the day when the pure, perfect, and innocent Son of God would be sacrificed. These lambs then only picture his perfect innocence and his infinite tenderness. Lambs are not rebellious. They're submissive animals. They don't fight even as they go off to their deaths, but rather they remain silent. They will willingly go where their master leads them. Such an animal then is one which makes a perfect picture of Jesus Christ who voluntarily submitted to his father's will and who did not fight or speak against the authority that came to take his life. Lambs further picture many of his other endearing attributes of harmlessness to those he died for, his humility even toward those who cared nothing for him, his patience towards the objects of his wrath, and they even emulate Christ in that lambs are useful for both food and clothing. For those who partake of him, he is their food. And for those who receive him, he is their unstained white garment of righteousness. The sacrifice of these lambs was to be a twice daily anticipation of many of the good things to come in Jesus Christ the Lord. One more aspect of them is actually not yet recorded. However, in Numbers 28, verse 3, it is added into the details where it says, two male lambs in their first year without blemish. Not only were these to be innocent lambs, which were to be sacrificed to the Lord, but they were to be without blemish. These then picture Christ as anticipated by Isaiah with the words that he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. 
Peter then further refines the image in the New Testament. He says, and if you call on the Father who is without partiality, judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Verse 38 continues, day by day continually. Leom tamid, daily continually. From the first day that they were to be offered until whatever point set by God in his eternal counsel, these offerings were to be made continually and without interruption. If war raged around Jerusalem and the walls were ready to be breached, the offering was not to be withheld from the Lord. If rains poured down or if the snow piled deep, the offering was to continue unabated. God did not delay in offering his son. Israel was not to delay in offering what merely pictured his coming. The idea for Israel was to first understand that they continuously contracted new defilement, which offended the Lord. And so daily they needed his pardon in order for them to continue before him. Secondly, it was to show them that the worship of him wasn't to be limited to a Sabbath day or one of the set feast day, but it was to continue on at all times, every single day of the year. Verse 39, one lamb you shall offer in the morning. Hakebes ha'echad ta'aseh baboker, the lamb, the one you shall offer in the morning. The first lamb was to be taken and sacrificed as an offering in the morning. There is a lesson for Israel to consider in this act, but there is also a picture of Christ to come. In a moment, we're going to look at both of them, but only after seeing what occurs with the second lamb. Verse 39 going on, And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Ve'et ha'kebes ha'shnei ta'aseh ben ha'arbaim. And the lamb, the second, you shall offer between the evenings. The second lamb was to be sacrificed at a particular time, which would later become known as the time of the evening offering, or simply as the time of the offering. This is found, for example, in the great challenge between the uh, 450 prophets of Baal and Aliyah. Here's what it says in 1 Kings 18. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Aliyah, the prophet, came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. This time became so important to the Jews that even during exile, when the sacrifices had been stopped being made, those who were observant still used that time of day to make a sacrifice of prayer, petition, and praise to God. This is seen, for example, in Daniel chapter 9. Here's what it says. Now, I was... While I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. For the people of Israel, these two daily sacrifices were to be a reminder of the sin debt that they incurred each night, necessitating a morning sacrifice, and the sin debt they incurred each day, necessitating an evening sacrifice. An innocent died each morning and each evening as a symbolic reminder of the mercy of God towards them. Thus, the nation was given a reminder to rededicate itself to the Lord morning by morning and evening by evening. 
They were to offer themselves as that reasonable sacrifice that Paul later tells us in the church to be. The only difference is that instead of considering the death of an innocent little lamb, we are to consider the death of the Lamb of God. How much more then should we treat the offering as holy and worthy of our fullest attention and devotion? Just as Peter equated Christ with the innocent lambs of the morning and evening sacrifice, Paul asks us to consider our own selves in a similar light, being holy and without spot or blemish. Here's what he says in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish. But there is more in this verse to consider. The Hebrew term here is ben ha-arbaim, between the evenings. It seems like a perplexing phrase, but one has to consider biblical time. According to the Bible, a day is divided into evening and morning. Thus, there are actually two evenings to be reckoned each day. The first began at 12 o'clock and went through until sunset. The second evening began at sunset and continued until night, meaning the termination at twilight or of the time of twilight. Therefore, this would be between 12 o'clock and the termination of twilight. Between the evenings, then, is a phrase which allows the three o'clock sacrifices at the temple to be considered as the evening sacrifice, even though to us it would be considered as an afternoon sacrifice. The sacrifice of these two lambs then, one in the morning and one between the evenings, meaning at 3 p.m., then picture the work of Jesus Christ on his final day. His final daylight hours are exactingly recorded in the Gospels. Luke says this concerning the time which parallels that of the morning sacrifice mandated here in Exodus. As soon as it was day, meaning the morning sacrifice, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. And again, Luke tells us of the ending of this day of brutality, torture, and death. Here's what it says in Luke 23. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness all over the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. The same time that Christ began his last day there in front of the chief priests and scribes, the morning offerings were being made. And the same time that Christ died on the cross, which is carefully and meticulously recorded in the Gospels, was the same time that the evening sacrifice was being made, the sixth hour or 3 p.m., God, knowing in advance of what was to come in the final day of Christ's earthly ministry in fulfillment of the law, ensured that these two lambs would be sacrificed day after day and year after year as a picture of the ultimate sacrifice of his own precious son. Now in the remembrance of the day and in the life which was given for us, we can press on in the full assurance that morning by morning and day by day our sins are truly removed as God's mercy is granted in all its fullness to us. As Christ offered himself once for all, he is literally, therefore, a continual sacrifice for us. What these continual day-by-day -day offerings pictured is what we have realized in the absolute sense through our receiving of Jesus Christ the Lord because of this, how much more should we be like Daniel and offer up our own spiritual sacrifices of prayer, praise, and petition to God, both morning and evening and at all times in between?
As Matthew Henry says, our daily devotions are the most needful of our daily works and the most pleasant of our daily comforts. Prayer time must be kept up as duly as mealtime. Those who starve their own souls, who keep not up constant attendance on the throne of grace, constancy in religion brings in the comfort of it. A lamb, spotless and pure, without any defect, will be sacrificed in my place. And looking at that lamb, I can certainly detect the greatest love and grace. This I see looking upon his face. Oh, that I could refrain and not see him die. Oh, if there could be any other way. How could this lamb go through it for one such as I? Oh, God, this perfect lamb alone my sin debt can pay. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the sinless one there on Calvary's tree. He has prevailed and the path to heaven has been unfurled. The Lamb of God who died for sinners like you and me. Our second thought today is sanctified by glory. That's verses 40 through 43. Verse 40, with the one lamb shall be one-tenth of an ephah of flour. Along with the lambs, other offerings were to be presented. The first such named offering is the isron solet and one-tenth of flour. From later verses, it says in this verse, uh, one-tenth of an ephah of flour, and ephah is inserted by the translators. From later verses, we know that it is one-tenth of an ephah, and that's why they insert it here. This is the first time that the division of tens is indicated in the entire Bible using the word isron, or the tenth part. And ephah is believed to be about four and a half gallons, and so one-tenth of that would be a bit more than three pounds of flour. Elsewhere, the tenth part of the ephah is specifically known as an omer. This was to be presented with the first lamb each day. With this was to be, verse 40 continuing, mixed with one-fourth of a hen of pressed oil. The ephah is a measure of dry goods. The hen, now introduced into the Bible, is a measure for liquids. It is believed to be a word of Egyptian origin. Although not certain, a hen is reckoned at about three-quarters of a gallon. And so one-quarter of a hen is somewhere around a pint or maybe a pint and a half. There is to be one-quarter of a hen of shemen katit, or oil-pressed. The word katit is used for the second of just five times. It indicates something beaten. It is only used in connection with the olives that have been made into oil. This oil was to be mixed in with the fine flour and presented as a daily offering along with the first lamb. The flour is an obvious picture of Christ, the bread of life, who came down from heaven. It was a reminder that day by day we are to dine on Christ. He is our sustenance and that which nourishes us. The oil from the beaten olives pictures the anointing of the Spirit upon him, which was suitable to carry him through the suffering and trials that he endured. Together they made a tasteful food offering to God, just as Christ crucified became our bread of life. As he is our spiritual meal, then we can and will be able to endure whatever trial or whatever suffering we too may face. Verse 40 continues, and one-fourth of a hen of wine is a drink offering. The same amount of wine as oil was to be presented to the Lord. However, this was not mixed with the bread, but was poured out as a drink offering. The word for wine here is yain. You can hear the similarity. It's where a word for wine comes from. It's a common word for wine, and it was used 10 times in Genesis, but it's seen only this once in all of the book of Exodus. It comes from an unused root, which means to effervesce. Thus, it indicates fermented wine. It is to be considered wine which has alcohol content in it. It is thus banqueting wine. This is only the second time that a drink offering has been mentioned in Scripture. 
The first was after Jacob's night sleeping on the stone when he had his heavenly dream back in Genesis 35. Here's what that said. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him Bethel. Like that drink offering, these were to be wholly poured out to the Lord. The pulpit commentary disagrees, though. Here's what they say. They say the application of the drink offerings is uncertain. Josephus says in his Antiquity of the Jews that they were poured out round the brazen altar. But the analogy of the meat offering makes it probable that a portion only was thus treated, while the greater part belonged to the priests. In the entire provision by which burnt offering and peace offering were to be necessarily accompanied with meat offerings and drink offerings, we can scarcely be wrong in seeing an arrangement made especially for the convenience of the priests. That's entirely incorrect. The wine contains alcohol content. This was forbidden for the priests to consume during their time when they ministered in their duties. This is seen in Leviticus 10 verses 8 through 11. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that you may distinguish between the holy and the unholy, and between the unclean and the clean, that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes with the, which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses." There was no prohibition on the priests or anyone else in Israel concerning alcohol consumption with but two exceptions. The restriction for the priests as they ministered and for the Nazarite during the time of a vow. Those are the only two times in the Bible that drinking alcohol is forbidden. But I highlight that because I want you to know that when you read commentaries, even by great scholars like the people at the pulpit commentary, they will make mistakes. And so always take things with a grain of salt until you research what is going on. The Bible forbid them from drinking that while they were ministering in their duties. The pouring out of the drink offering in its entirety signifies the pouring out of the lifeblood of Christ for the remission of sins. There is no way that God would allow the priests to consume such an offering. In this act can be seen a secondary picture of the outpouring of his love and the offering up of himself. The three offerings of the lamb, the meal offering, and the wine produce a marvelous picture of a banquet of Christ's life presented to God and for man. But for Israel of old, they could only speculate on the meanings of these things. For them, the sacrifice and accompanying offerings would simply be signs of gratitude to God for his everlasting mercies. They would also be faithful, twice daily acknowledgments of his protective care and his enduring love. Verse 41, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. As was noted in the last clause of verse 39, the second lamb was to be offered at twilight, or literally between the evenings. At that time, Christ gave up his spirit on the cross of Calvary. As John Lang describes these two sacrifices, he says the morning sacrifice made atonement for the sins committed in the night, and the evening sacrifice expiated the sins committed during the day. This is true in a sense, and thus it pictures a continual purification from sin for the people day unto day and night unto night. As this was merely a picture of Christ to come, in its fullest sense, it symbolizes the full atonement and complete expiation of sins for any and all who have received what his life and his work offers. Along with this second lamb, there were also other offerings. Verse 41 continues, and you shall offer with it the grain offering and the drink offering as in the morning. 
The same procedure was to be followed for the bread, oil, and wine in the evening as was conducted in the morning. The cycle was complete in the two sacrifices each day, and the cycle of our redemption was complete beginning on that Friday morning so long ago in Jerusalem and ending at 3 p.m. that same afternoon. Verse 41 continues, For a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. It should be noted that together the two offerings are described in this one clause. In other words, the two sacrifices, though separate, actually comprise one whole. Only together do they form to make a complete offering to the Lord. Now, why is it noted this way? It is for three specific reasons. The first deals with Israel. These two sacrifices combined were intended to show Israel that they were to consecrate their lives each day anew unto the Lord. So that the entirety of their lives would be included, the two offerings were made continually, both morning and evening. As long as that law existed, the requirement was to be Israel's reminder of their consecrated status as the Lord's holy people. Secondly, they are mentioned together because only together do they picture the final day of the Lord's earthly ministry, before and up to his death. And so thirdly, they now form for us what Israel only saw in earthly sacrifices. We are to consecrate our lives each day anew unto the Lord. This is so that the entirety of our lives will be included. The complete and finished work of Christ is to be our constant reminder both morning and evening. Verse 42, this shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations. The words of the previous clause, a sweet aroma and offering made by fire in Hebrew are masculine. And yet combined, they now are called a burnt offering. This in the Hebrew is feminine. And so it appears that there's a gender discord. But this is what Kyle calls an ad sensum. An ad sensum, which I had to actually look up, is a grammatical construction in which a word takes the gender or number, not of the word with which it should regularly agree, but of some other word implied in that word. In other words, there is a precision of thought and intent in the original, which is not seen in our translations. And now, once again, the word tamid, or continuously, is repeated from verse 38. The offerings were to be perpetual but it cannot be said forever. They were to continue only as long as the law for which they were mandated was in effect. As a point of doctrine, then, it should be noted that those who perpetually reinsert precepts from the law into their Christian doctrine, that they're actually in violation of the law which they insist upon. If the law is in effect, then the sacrifices must be made. After the consecration of Aaron and his sons, this is the first point that has been considered. It is a continual or a perpetual statute for the time of the law. If the law is in effect in any part, then this part must be followed through with. Thus, it is both ridiculous and absurd to assume that one can pick and choose what parts of the Mosaic law they will adhere to. It is an all or a nothing thing. To go with all can only mean condemnation. To go with nothing means a full and complete trusting in Christ alone, of whom each of these only picture. If you're sticking to precepts of the law, be they tithing or not eating pork or any other part of the law, in hopes of pleasing God, you're not only failing, you're disgracing the work of his son in offending him. Now, when I say tithing, the reason why I bring that up is because people think I've got to tithe. That's something that my preachers have always told me. Tithing is a precept under the law. It is fulfilled. We don't have to tithe. You give whatever you want or don't give anything. The only prescription in the New Testament is to give as you have been blessed. 
That's it. That's the only prescription. So I say that if you think that you are earning God's favor by tithing, you're inserting the law. And that's just the same as saying I need to be circumcised or I need to stop eating pork. Never let somebody snuff you like that. You listen to a guy that says that you should be tithing, leave that church. He's inserting the law into the new covenant grace of Jesus Christ. Anyway, it's just one of my pet peeves, so I don't want to dwell on it too much, but boy, it just makes me angry when people do that. Verse 42 continues, at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. The translation here in the New King James Version is incorrect in part. I've said this a thousand times, and I'm probably going to say it a thousand more before we finish Exodus. It is the door of the tent of meeting, not the tabernacle. However, the King James Version does an even worse part by calling it the tabernacle of the congregation. They've used an entirely new set of words to describe what's going on here. This is entirely incorrect. In Hebrew, it is Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting. They have made the assumption that this is speaking of the door of the courtyard where the altar is most closely placed. But this is not correct. The sacrifices are said to be at the door of the tent of meeting before the Lord. This is speaking of the door to the tent of meeting itself, even though the altar is not placed in that exact spot. The door for the tent is the word petach. The gate of the courtyard is the word sha'ar. They are two entirely different words describing two different things. It is the altar before the door of the tent of meeting where the Lord would meet with the people and commune with them. This is seen in the next words. Verse 42 continues, where I will meet with you and speak with you. Most translations that we have today do not give a good sense of the words because of our modern use of the word you. It says, Asher ivaed lachem shama ladaber elecha sham, where I will meet with you, plural, and speak with you, singular. The reason for the wording is explained very well by Charles Ellicott. Here's what he said. This passage determines the meaning of the expression, tent of meeting. It was not the place where the congregation met together, implying the King James Version incorrect translation, for the congregation were forbidden to enter it. But the place where God met his people through their mediator and representative, the high priest, who could there commune with God and obtain replies from him on all practical matters that were of national importance. The fact that all communication was to be through the high priest is indicated by the change of person, plural to singular. The words in today's passage, as I said earlier, have been exceptionally precise, and they take great thought and consideration to understand. If you try, you can see what's going on rather clearly. Christ is the altar. Christ is the offerings. Christ is the high priest. Christ is the door. Christ is all of these things. Therefore, the Lord is saying that he will speak to us, plural, through him, singular. Everything about this edifice, the offerings, the exquisite wording that is used, all of it is intended for us to see the person and the work of Christ for us, both past, present, and ongoing, even until forever. This is seen in the next words as well, verse 43. And there I will meet with the children of Israel. It is through the entire process of what is being described that the Lord promises to meet with the children of Israel. They will meet with him through the sacrifices and offerings. They will meet with him at the altar on which they are made. They meet with him through Aaron and the priests. There in the place, the rituals and the people, the Lord says that he will meet with the children of Israel. Verse 43 continues, And the tabernacle 
shall be sanctified by my glory. In this clause, the words the tabernacle are inserted by the translators for either your benefit or as an error. All it says is venikdash bikbodi, and I will sanctify by my glory. The question is, what will the Lord sanctify by his glory? Of the 20 English translations, which I check every week for my sermons, here are the options. The place, and the place shall be sanctified by my glory. It, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. The tabernacle, the place, that place, the tent, and finally, the altar. Anyone? Which is it? Is it the tabernacle? Is it the place? Is it the altar? Which is it? The answer is none of the above. The tent, the altar, Aaron, and his sons are all mentioned in the next verse as being consecrated. The only entity mentioned in this verse is Israel. It is Israel which is sanctified by the glory of the Lord that is being referred to here. This is later explained explicitly in Ezekiel 37 with these words. See the similarity. My tabernacle also should be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. In the New Testament, it is Christ who is said to sanctify the people of Israel. As each implement, each rite, and each person of the tabernacle merely points to Christ, then this is speaking first and foremost of the people who are sanctified by him. This is a higher and more perfect sanctification than the law could ever provide. It is a sanctification which proceeds from the Lord himself. It is the people who are being sanctified by his glory personally, represented by the various things around them by which they draw near to God. And we'll have proof of this in the next verses to come. It is I who consecrates Israel. It is by my glory that this is so. And it is I who can consecrate you as well. To you, my holiness, I will show. For those who call out from Egypt's chains, I will respond and break them free. Nothing of the previous bondage now remains for those who have been released by me. I am the Lord who sanctifies his people. It is by my glory that this is so. So let them sing their praises from under the steeple. They are mine. Let the world know. Our third thought today is, I am the Lord their God. It's verses 44 through 46. Verse 44, so I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. Only after noting that he would sanctify the people of Israel does it now mention sanctification of the list of things which allow for the ministering of the people. Further, it is in the future tense, and I will consecrate. It is another indication that what was said in the previous verse is wholly separate from that which is being referred to now. This is why it's so very disastrous to be captivated by a single translation of the Bible. Man is fallible, and the insertions are man's fallible words, often incorrectly rendered. This is perfectly evident once again, even in this verse, which the New King James Version translates as tabernacle. Again, it is Ohel Moed, or the tent of meeting, and the altar, which are first noted as being sanctified. Verse 44 continues, I will also consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. After the edifice, only then are Aaron and his sons mentioned as to be sanctified by the Lord. As they are a part of the people of Israel, it is logical that they would be mentioned after the tent and the altar if the previous verse was speaking of Israel as a whole. The separation between the clauses shows that verse 43 refers to the people of Israel. This will become fully evident in the next verse, but before going there, 
Adam Clark's words on this verse in relation to the ordaining of men as ministers is worthy of note. Here's what he says. From this, as well as from many other things mentioned in the sacred writings, we may safely infer that no designation by man only is sufficient to qualify any person to fill the office of minister of the sanctuary. The approbation and consecration of man have both their pro propriety and use, but must never be made substitutes for the unction and inspiration of the Almighty. Let holy men ordain, but let God sanctify. Then we may expect that his church shall be built up on its most holy faith. Now think of that. Adam Clark was a writer of the Methodist denomination. He's considered their greatest theologian. And look at what we're facing today from our prophecy update. Because we have failed to follow the precepts of the Bible. The lesson in Clark's word has been borne out thousands and thousands and thousands of times. Man ordains, God sanctifies. How many pastors and preachers have been ordained by man, but they have had no sanctification by God's spirit? Hence, it is never wise to put faith in a title such as Pope, priest, pastor, or preacher. Rather, we are to put our faith in God and inspect the man as to whether he is endowed with God's approval or not. And the only way to do that is if he lives in accord with the word which he has given us. Verse 45, I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. As I said a minute ago, the structure of how these verses are put together shows us that verse 43 is speaking of Israel. There is a chiastic structure, and if you don't know what that is, it says something, then it goes around and says something else, and then it turns around and repeats it in the opposite order. There's a chiastic structure here in verses 43 through 45, which allows us to see this. Now, here's what it says. One, I will meet with the children of Israel, and they shall be sanctified by my glory. The second one, so I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. The third one, I will also consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. And then the fourth one, I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. Israel, Israel, and then the ordination or consecration of the altar and of the priest. And so it's showing us what it's speaking of. It's speaking of Israel who is sanctified by the glory of the Lord. The Lord promises to meet with the children of Israel and to sanctify them by his glory. Therefore, he will dwell among the children of Israel and he will be their God. The center of the verses, as I said, speaks of the tent, the altar, Aaron, and his sons. Each of these has pictured Christ. Therefore, we can see the picture revealed for us in the church now. Through Christ, in all of his many roles, God meets with us, sanctifies us, dwells with us, and is pleased to call himself our God. As I said earlier, the passage today is exquisitely structured and the wording is exactingly precise. Who would have thought when we started them just less than about an hour ago that such marvelous treats would be seen in them? And yet, you are learning something here that so very few people have ever taken the time to learn. Like Israel of old, for us today, it is Christ who directs us. It is he who saves us. It is he who sustains us. It is he who enlightens us. It is he who defends us. And it is he who loves us enough to dwell among us. In these verses, you are experiencing marvelous depths of the wonder that is hardly ever, ever plumbed by people in the church. You are finding Christ through the revealed mind of God. Be pleased to revel in him because through these words, there is wonderful assurance. Verse 46, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God. It is through Christ who sanctifies his people that we can know Jehovah our God. It is he who dwells among us and who lives in us by his good spirit. 
It is by no other name that we can identify with God in this unique, personal, and intimate way. In the tabernacle, the people saw the working of God for God. It was through these types and shadows that they could say, here is the Lord our God. As these types and shadows look forward to Christ, then when we see their fulfillment in him, we can, and without any reservation at all, say, here is the Lord our God. God has given us the old only to point us to the new. Let us never squander our rightful position by deferring to the old and trusting in our own deeds of the law in order to do what Christ has already accomplished and set aside for us. It's the whole purpose of the book of Galatians. Don't defer to deeds of the law. Don't do it. Don't do it. He keeps saying it again and again through the entire book of Galatians. It is finished. It is set aside. It is obsolete. It is annulled in Christ. Those all come from the book of Hebrews. Verse 46 continues, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. It is through the sanctification of Israel and all that went along with it that they would know who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. In other words, it is not through the tabernacle itself, nor through the altar, nor through Aaron that they would know this, but through their sanctification. This is why the Lord ties this knowledge of himself in with being brought out of Egypt. Otherwise, it would make no sense. The tabernacle was replaced by the temple, right? The people were exiled to Babylon. The priestly line stopped its sacrifices and its offerings, and yet they never forgot that it was the Lord who dwelt among them who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. Thus, we need to remember what Egypt only pictured, our life of sin. We don't have an altar, do we? We don't have a tent. We don't have a high priest. Rather, we have the altar, we have the tent, and we have the high priest. All capitals there, folks. We have Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. It is he who has brought us up out of the land of Egypt, and he did it for a most marvelous purpose. Verse 46 continues, that I may dwell among them. Until Christ died for us, we could not be justified. Until we received his work, we remained apart from him and separate from the covenant promises. But when we called out to him from our state of bondage, he made another entry on the rolls of heaven. He set another place at the heavenly banquet table, and he added on another room to the glorious dwelling where we will reside with him for all eternity. But he also gave us of his spirit so that even now he dwells with us. What Israel realized in type and shadow, we realize in spirit and in truth. We have the fullness of what God offers when he said that he will dwell among us. We have the true tent, our Lord Jesus Christ. And because we have Christ, we have the absolute fullness of our final words of the day. Verse 46 finishes with, I am the Lord their God. Ani Yehovah Elohehem. If there is one truth which is absolutely sure in the Bible, and which must be stated again and again and again, it is that Jesus Christ is Yehovah Elohim. He is the Lord God. This is so absolutely evident in Scripture that it takes the very hardest of hearts or the very dullest of minds to deny it. Throughout the entire chapter, we have seen literally dozens, if not hundreds, of pictures of Jesus Christ. In today's nine verses, we have seen countless more. God is calling out through his word to show us what was, what he has done, and what will be, and what he will do. And every single detail of it hinges on our acceptance that he personally stepped out of his eternal realm and united with his creation in order to redeem us from Egypt. 
our place of bondage to the devil and to sin. In that act, he again becomes the Lord our God. And as certain as any other truth is found in the Bible, if we fail to accept that and to receive him as our Savior, we remain under the devil's power. The little lambs whose lifeblood ebbed away at the altar of sacrifice each day make people cringe at the brutality of God who would allow such a thing. And yet those innocent little lives were given as a mere type and a shadow of something far, far more precious and infinitely more valuable. The love of God for humanity impelled him to do what he did. This is how much he loves the work of his hands. And this is the amazing length that he would go to in order to once again have fellowship with us. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, God is calling out to you. Will you respond? Call on Jesus Christ. Marvelous things lie ahead if you do. And very quickly, as I do each week, in case somebody just happens to click onto the sermon and has never known how to call on Jesus Christ or what it even means, let me just really quickly explain it. The Bible says that we have sin in our lives. This is something that we inherited in us from our first father, and it's traveled all the way down through human history. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We go to work, and we get paid at the end of the work week because we have earned our wages. The wages of sin is death. That's what we get for the life that we have lived. Then this death is twofold. The first is that it's a spiritual disconnect from God. God is infinitely holy, and we're fallen, and therefore we are infinitely separated from him. And then as a result of that death, we also have our physical death. And if we don't get the first spiritual death fixed before our physical death comes, then we will be forever separated from God. And that's what Jesus Christ came to do, is to step into the realm of humanity and pay the sin debt that you and I owe. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is through the gift of Christ and his death on the cross of Calvary that we can be reconciled to God. And the Bible says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no if, ands, or buts about it. There's no losing your salvation if you mess up. Of course you're going to mess up. We all mess up. Anybody that says that they haven't messed up is just fooling themselves. We all mess up daily. We think things we shouldn't do. We sin, we err, we stray. But God has already taken care of that at the cross of Calvary. We are on the highway to heaven because of what Christ did. So please, today, if you've never called on Jesus, call out to him. I have sin. I know I can't get rid of it. Forgive me, Jesus. And he will. And he will be your Lord. And he will lead you to the still waters of rest, to the green grass, and the, just the banquet which lies ahead of us in heaven. Do it today. Our closing verse today comes from Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. All of this stuff we're looking at in the Old Testament seems so irrelevant to what we do in our faith with Jesus, and yet it is intricately tied up into it. And understanding properly what's being said in the old is what illuminates and makes verses like that come alive. You can say, oh, the tabernacle of God is with man. He'll dwell with us. We don't really know what that means without understanding what these people went through in type and in picture to show us the marvel of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Next week is uh, a departure from Exodus. We're going to uh, uh, be in Ecclesiastes 12, 1 through 14. Our lives are such a very short span. It's entitled The Brevity of Man. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. 
Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and lead you through it on dry ground. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? I will dwell among them and be their God. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar to lambs of the first year, day by day continually in this, do not falter. One lamb you shall offer in the morning so bright and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. With the one lamb shall be one-tenth of an ephah of flour, such as the proffering, mixed with one-fourth of a hen of pressed oil and one-fourth of a hen of wine as a drink offering. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and you shall offer with it the grain offering as to my word, and the drink offering is in the morning for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations, so you shall do, at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord where, where I will meet to speak with you. And there I will meet with the children of Israel where I abide, and the tabernacle by my glory shall be sanctified. So I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting and the altar too. I will consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests, so shall I do. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God as to you, I now tell. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them up out of Egypt the land, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God, so they shall understand. Surely you are holy, O God, and this is what you expect also from us. But even now you have accepted us while on this earth we trod because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus. How can such a marvelous thing as this be that you have granted us to again fellowship with you? Thank you, O God, for Jesus, the Lord of glory, who through his shed blood has made all things new. And so in his name to you we give our praise, and so shall it be forever and ever, even until eternal days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the precious lamb without spot or blemish, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he was offered for us and that we are cleansed and purified by his sacrifice. We thank you for that. We praise you for it. Lord God, you know that each one of us is struggling in one way or another today. We have physical pains. We have family troubles. We have those that we love that are sick or dying or that are uh, just in distress of some sort, financial problems, whatever they are, they're weighing us down. But help us to look beyond those things and to understand that they are blips in the road and that we have something far, far greater ahead of us, which is glory, the sure hope of glory because of what Christ Jesus did. And we're so comforted by that, seeing these pictures in the old and seeing them fulfilled in the new, they can only strengthen our resolve and our faith. And we thank you for it. And we love you, and we praise you, and we exalt you, and we do so in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. We get the uh, instructions for the Lord's Supper, and it comes directly from the Lord's, uh, uh, from the word of uh, God, which is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, there Paul writes these words. He says, For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he would have given thanks over this. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it and he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant.
first he would have blessed it. He would have said, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Borei Peri HaGuffin. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Good to have you back, brother. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time to come gather together. And uh, a special prayer for each person who is not here today. Some are traveling, some are uh, engaged in business. And uh, we thank you that Steve has returned after a long and successful time in uh, Indiana. And we uh, are grateful for that. And Lord God, um, we just uh, want to give you praise and honor and glory in the week ahead through how we conduct our lives. And uh, we also, one more thing, Lord, let us thank you one more time for Pat, who is having her 90th birthday today. We celebrated it last week, but we would ask that you would just bless her today in a way that she will know that our prayers are, are rising to you and coming down on her. And we thank you for it. We love you, Lord God. You are so very good to us. How marvelous you are. We praise you, we exalt you, and we do so in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.